again, I uh, just encourage you to go check out the Bible Project. They have uh, videos, a number of videos on different Bible books and themes. Uh, but as we turn our attention again to the book of Acts, we'll be in Acts chapter 13. And as you can tell, we have come to a new section of the book uh, where now the focus turns on the Apostle Paul, the former persecutor of the church, uh, whose eyes were opened by Jesus. Um, and for the next several weeks, we will follow him as he journeys around the Mediterranean Sea, uh, telling the good news of Jesus. Um, now, at, we're going to be in lots of unfamiliar places, uh, places that most of us will only ever hear of. And so to kind of help visual learners in particular, as I read, we're going to put a map up on the screen uh, so that you're not as distracted by the place names you can see uh, where they're going and what they're doing um, but you're you're more focused on what's uh, what's going on so if uh, hopefully that's helpful to you so let's uh, let's turn to Acts chapter 13 we're going back to Antioch a church we met a couple of weeks ago and we're going to pick up a story there Acts 13 verse 1 now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia... And from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John, uh, who's also called Mark, to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Barjesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, uh, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Paul, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all Righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed. When he saw what had occurred, because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. May God take his word and use it to change us for his purpose and our joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, we met the church in Antioch a couple of weeks ago, uh, and uh, we talked about how the Holy Spirit was evident, or the marks of the Spirit on their lives as a church, and I prayed that God would do it again. 
I pray that God would do it here uh, in our church. And that's still my prayer. Because what happens in Antioch changes the world. The, the messengers who will leave the church at Antioch and begin making their way around the world, uh, around at least the known world, the Roman Empire, they actually changed world history. They changed the Roman Empire and as a result changed uh, world history. And so Antioch becomes this launching pad for the message of Jesus uh, to the known world. How does that happen? Well, it happens because a seeking God sends out his seeking people. A seeking God sends out seeking people to those who are seeking. It's a lot of seeking. There's a lot of seeking going on in, uh, in this passage. Uh, and so let's, uh, we're gonna, that's how we're going to break it down. First, we're going to talk about the ultimate seeker, God himself. God is the ultimate uh, is the great seeker and sender. Uh, and then as a result, the church, his people, join in God's seeking and sending. And then we're going to see that they are seeking those who are seeking. We'll talk about that. Because that, that's kind of, that's a little bit controversial. Uh, because in places like in Romans, it says no one seeks God. So is there is there legitimately room to say that somebody of part uh, apart from God, is seeking God. We're going to talk about what that means. So, but first, let's talk about the great seeker himself, uh, and that is God. God is on a mission. And that's important for us to say because we need to see that God is not passive. God is not indifferent, right? He's not sulking around heaven with his hands in his pockets, just kind of hoping against hope that, one day, someday, someone might come see him, right? Uh, no, God is actively engaged in mission. <clears throat> Sorry. He's actively been engaged in mission actually since the beginning. Um, but here we see it uh, in Acts chapter 13. Um, now, we, we should ask the question, what is God's mission? What is God up to in the world? And Jesus was, uh, was very clear in Luke 19.10. Jesus said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. That's why Jesus was sent. That is God's mission. It is a search and rescue mission. Uh, and it continues through the church. So God is not passive to need. He is not indifferent to the lost. In fact, he is the one. He is the first one. He is the primary seeker. He's out to seek and save the lost. And we see that here uh, in these verses. If you look in verse 2, it says that as the church is worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit speaks. God the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, speaks and says, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work uh, to which I've appointed them. So God calls. And then in verse 4, we see that they are sent out, not by the church, though they are sent out by the church, but really they're being sent out by the Holy Spirit. So God calls and God sends. And then in verse 9, when they are opposed, when their message is opposed, we are told that Paul is filled with the Spirit to respond. So not only does God call 
And not only does God send, but he also goes with those he sends. He is the main actor. He is the main driver. He's the one at the helm. And we should say, too, right, that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is a person, not a, not a substance, not a power. He is a person. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce, a longtime pastor, put it this way. He said, we, we need to stop thinking about the Holy Spirit as a power that is to be seized and used by us. And remember that he is a person by whom we are used, whose job it is to use us. And so that is what the Spirit is doing. This is God's mission, and we are simply instruments in his hands. That's what's going on here in Acts 13. And so one question we ought to ask, if you're a believer this morning, or maybe a question to ask yourself this week is, where is God at work? As I think about uh, the missionary God, because that's who he is, where is he at work around me? Where is he at work, and where can I join in? And so if God is the seeker, if God is the sender, does that mean that the church is passive? Does that mean we just kind of wait around? Uh, William Carey, a great missionary who was sent or who went to uh, India, uh, when he first talked about his missionary endeavors, when he approached the mission board, he was told by, uh, so the story goes, he was told by an elderly gentleman to sit down, that if God wanted to save the heathen, he would take care of it himself. Uh, now, whether how exactly that conversation went, that's kind of the lore of it, but it reveals kind of that passive indifference we can feel. Like, well, I mean, it's God's mission. Let him take care of it. But actually, because it is God's mission, because he is the primary actor, we are then impelled, compelled to join in, to join him in his mission. He drives us to seek him, seeking the lost. And we see that in Antioch, right? That they made, a, they made a habit first of seeking God. And we talked about this a little bit, but you notice that it's as they are worshiping and fasting. They are making a regular routine of seeking God. Now, I know normally when we speak in, when we talk about habits, that we usually talk about them in negative terms, right? You've got to kick the habit. Um, but we're talking about those positive, uh, good routines, things we do purposefully and intentionally. Have you ever noticed that, like, your bad habits aren't really purposeful or intentional? Right? Nobody, if, like, if you, if you ever started smoking, that really wasn't all that hard to do. Right? It was the quitting that was the hard part. Right? A sedentary life is actually pretty easy. You just sit down on the couch, and you grab a bowl of chips, and you grab a bowl of salsa. Like, you don't even have to go anywhere, right? Like, the bad habits are the ones that are easy to do. They don't require much purpose or intentionality. Uh, But it's the good habits that require a little more sweat, a little more effort, or a lot more effort. But we notice here that the church makes a regular, it would seem to be their regular practice of Worshiping and fasting. Let's talk about fasting. Um, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but I wanted to revisit it because it's, it's mentioned twice here. So it's very key to their practice as a church. Right? Fasting means to go without food for a time for the purpose of seeking God. 
Now, how does that work? Why is it okay? Why, why does abstaining from food or some other good thing actually help focus my attention on God? Well, think about how food works in your life, right? It's designed to be satisfying. It's designed to be comforting. And when we eat too much of it, it actually numbs us, right? This is what happens after you get done at Three Amigos, like your afternoon is shot uh, because of all the chips you ate, right? Um, so back to those bad habits, um, right? Food is comfort and satisfying. Like I am not obligated to like dark chocolate. Like I, like I don't go to the cabinet after lunch and dinner and grab a piece of dark chocolate because, well, I just have to. Like, nobody has obligated me to do that. There's a little happy light that goes off in my brain when I put dark chocolate in my mouth, right? It comforts us. It satisfies us. So what we're doing in fasting is we are putting aside a temporary satisfaction, a temporary joy, so that we can remind ourselves and press deeper into satisfying joy, uh, into the joy of God. Don, Donald Whitney says this, Fasting can be an expression of finding your greatest pleasure and enjoyment in life from God. That's the goal of fasting, right? We're depriving ourselves of, of, of a temporary good so that we can uh, focus more intently uh, on God himself, developing a deeper satisfaction in God himself. And it would appear that regular fasting was part of life in the church in Antioch. And uh, as painful as it is, I want this to become a regular routine for us as well. And I don't know how that happens. I think a couple weeks ago I, I asked you, I kind of gave you the homework assignment of picking one day in the month of October and using that day to fast and to pray. And just again, and maybe it's asking that question, uh, God, where are you at work around me and what are you calling me to? Uh, and then last week I mentioned that we were going to uh, – that. I invited you to pray with me on Tuesdays uh, leading up to the election. And we're not just praying because of the election. Though that's, there's plenty of good reason to pray there. But we're praying that God's kingdom would come and that his will would be done. So there are things we can pray for our church. There are things we can pray for our world. Uh, and, I, and I invited you to join me in that on Tuesdays, wherever you are. Uh, so let me add to that another layer. What if on Tuesdays at lunchtime... You fasted and prayed. Uh, and if, if eating is part of your work routine uh, at lunchtime, maybe you have meetings at 12 o'clock or something where fasting isn't an option, maybe you picked 10 or 11 o'clock. And I will even offer this invitation. If you would like to come here and pray uh, on Tuesdays, we will have the doors of the sanctuary opened for corporate prayer. So if you would like to, if you are able uh, to come here and pray on Tuesdays at noon, or if there's another time that suits you best, let me know, uh, and we'll pray here together. So I want to invite you to that as a part of making this just a regular routine of seeking God's face in fasting, because it's while they're worshiping and fasting that the Spirit speaks. Um, they're not, I, we don't know that they were looking to engage in world mission. That may, I, who knows if that was on their radar or not. They were just worshiping the Lord, and the Holy Spirit spoke during that time. And then notice what they do after the Spirit speaks. Right? They don't just kind of salute and say, yes, sir. They continue to fast 
and pray. They continue to seek the Lord's direction. And then they lay hands on Barnabas and Saul to say, we're with you and God is with you. Right? So they send out, the, and they send out two of their best. Right? As a, we talked about this, right? As a church, uh, would we ever send out our most gifted people? Um, but they send out two of their best. This is, a, this is a costly sacrifice for them to make. And so uh, they send out Barnabas and Saul and John Mark. And I must also point out that they don't go alone. They send out a team. Even though one person, uh, and this will be Paul, kind of comes to the spotlight, he's never by himself. He's always out as a team. So the church joins in God's seeking and sending, which then begs, begs the question, where do they go? To whom do they go? Who should they seek? And I want you to stop for a second and just think about how potentially overwhelming this is. right? If God's mission is to seek and to save the lost, well, who's lost? Everybody. Who needs to be saved? Everybody. Uh, how far are we supposed to take this to the ends of the earth? Okay, so everybody on the planet. That's not overwhelming at all, right? That's not, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, like a leadership slogan, and I actually like it. Uh, think big, start small, go deep. Right, well, you can't think much bigger than we got the whole world to work with and every soul on it as best we can, right? And maybe you're the kind of person who hears that presentation and you're like, yes, drop me behind enemy lines and I will storm the castle. Then there's the rest of us who are like, yeah, I don't even know where to start. So where do Barnabas and Saul start? Well, they actually start by going to Barnabas's home, Cyprus. And this shows us that while they're listening to the Spirit, they also have a plan, right? They're not rugged individualists who go to the church and say, hey, God told us to do this, and you need, this, is, this is what God said to us. You need to send us on our way. No, that was a message to the whole church, right? Mission is the job of the whole church. So we need to avoid rugged individualism. But on the other hand, they're not bogged down by bureaucracy, right? When, they, when, when, this, when this is said to the church, it's not like, well, we receive new requests for missions on the third Tuesday of every month, so you'll need to submit your request then, uh, and you can keep the original form, and we'll keep the carbon copy, right? They don't get bogged down in bureaucracy either. They're listening to the Spirit. So there's this balance uh, between individualism and bureaucracy. They're listening to the Spirit, but they do make a plan. Uh, and they go to Barnabas's home, and they start working in the synagogues people who would have understood what they were talking about, people who had access to the Hebrew Scriptures. But even then, right, we need a road map. What are we, who, who are we seeking? What are we doing? Wouldn't it be nice if God just painted foreheads, like green is go, red is no? But he doesn't do that. Any indications here uh, of, of how they went about their mission? Well, there's two other seekers that we meet uh, in this passage, and they're actually seeking opposite things. Uh, we meet Sergius Paulus, and he is the proconsul uh, for the island of Cyprus. So he is, a, he is the highest-ranking Roman official. He's the boss. And in verse 7, Luke tells us that he is an intelligent man. And what was he seeking? He was seeking to hear the word of God. 
So he summoned Barnabas and Saul. And that right there tells you that God is the one at work because there's no reason that a high-ranking Roman official would ever summon two nobodies like Barnabas and Saul. These are not important, influential people. But we see from Scripture, we don't know why, and we, we would assume that the Holy Spirit is at work in Sergius's heart because he is seeking to hear the word of God. And it just so happens, what do you know? Two emissaries of God happen to come into his town, and they're speaking the word. What are the odds? See, God is at work all around us. God is at work in your story, Christian. Will you ask him where he is at work so that you can join in? Ask him for those opportunities. Ask him to show, show you the people in your life who are seeking to hear good news. And, and ask God to give you the grace to speak to them. But there's another person here. Uh, he's called by two names, Bar-Jesus. That would probably be like his proper name or his last name. And Bar, is he, this is, this is a, he's a Jewish guy, so uh, Bar means son of. And Jesus uh, is really actually a common Hebrew name, Joshua. Okay? Uh, so really, this, this only means son of Joshua. Now, in, in Hebrew, the, the name Joshua meant salvation. Okay? Uh, but he's also called Elimus. Uh, and he's also seeking to do something. You see, he's an advisor to the proconsul, uh, which would be very common for a magician or a wise, a wise man like him to be in the, the um, what's the word I'm looking for? The group of people who hang around somebody important. Not inner circle. Uh, yeah, well, you get the idea. All right? Yeah. Um, and he hears Barnabas and Saul... And we're told that he's a false prophet. Now, a prophet is somebody who represents God. He's God's spokesperson. So for him to be a false prophet means that he claims to speak for God, but he's not really. Okay? So he's an advisor to the proconsul, and he realizes that when he's hearing Barnabas and Saul speak, that he's, he's in danger, right? He's, his, his position is at risk. And so what does Luke tell us he's seeking to do? He's seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So the proconsul is seeking to hear the word. He's moving in the right direction. Uh, but Elimus is threatened by this message, so he's seeking to turn him away from this message. And it's at this point that the Holy Spirit fills Paul and prompts him to respond and Paul actually plays on that name, Bar-Jesus, son of salvation. And he says, you're not a son of salvation. You're a son of the devil. You're full of villainy. You're full of deceit. You are seeking to make crooked or turn, same word, the straight paths of the Lord. In other words, Elimus is trying to be a stumbling block, an obstacle in the way of the Lord's work. He's trying to stop Sergius Paulus from believing. Now, who do you think is going to win that battle? Exactly. Right? So Paul, full of the Holy Spirit, says, You will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Now, that sounds, that, that sounds really harsh, and Paul's language is hard. But think about, think about what Elimus was trying to do. He was trying to blind someone to the truth. 
And so his judgment is fitting. His judgment, and remember too that Paul himself was once blinded by God. And it was in his blindness that God revealed himself to Paul. So Paul is not laying on this man anything that he himself has not been through. And this is revealing Elimus' true spiritual condition. Right? He was blind spiritually, so the Holy Spirit makes him blind physically. And we can only hope that he realized in his blindness as he groped around. Right, He is the one who'd been guiding the proconsul. Now he's the one, ironically, groping around looking for someone to guide him. We can hope that he saw his own condition truly for the first time while he was in darkness and came to the light. But... Let's not get caught up in what happens to Elimus and miss the last verse. In verse 12, we're told that the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So God uses this judgment to redeem the proconsul. And it's not just the miracle, but right, he's amazed at the teaching. He's amazed at the word that the miracle just confirms, right? Uh, so, and this is, this is really just an illustration of what happens again and again and again in the book of Acts. Messengers are sent out. They are opposed. God wins. People, people are saved. And it's a replay of what happened in the life of Jesus. Jesus is sent out. He was opposed. He wins. People are rescued. Right? This is the way that God works. And so I would ask you this morning, I would conclude by asking you this, what are you seeking? What are you seeking this morning? Are you seeking God to listen, to follow, to join in his mission? Are you seeking to know God? Are you like the proconsul? Uh, on the outside, looking in, but wanting to hear more. This morning, I invite you to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness to us in giving it to us. And God, we pray that you would write its eternal truths on our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and respond to God's grace, both in song as well as in giving. Uh, if you would like to give online, you can go to our website, graceclanton.com, and there's a link there. Uh, if you're giving in person this morning, there are offering plates out in the fellowship hall. Let's, uh, let's sing the doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Receive God's blessing from Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, 
To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. God's people said, Amen.